Please take your Bibles. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, there are some on the back table to my right, your left. Feel free to go grab one. Ecclesiastes 3. Verses 18 through 22 this morning. In Ecclesiastes 3, we have been considering the reality of God's control. To everything there is a season, the Bible says, and a time for every work under the sun. Solomon would go on to say, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. We, especially we who regard the Bible as true, choose to believe that God is in control even in the hard times. But as we live, as we interact, there are just certain things in the world that seem to challenge this theory. We looked at one of those last week. We considered corruption. And there were two particular uh, God-ordained institutions in which Solomon saw corruption and was troubled with. He said that there was corruption in the halls of justice. And then he said there's corruption in the halls of righteousness. Corruption in the courts, in the government, and corruption in the church. And this troubled Solomon. And the question was, is God truly in control? Can God really be in control? Is it really God's plan when you see corruption, not just in the world around you, but when you see corruption in the government, in the courts, and when you see corruption in the churches? And we talked about that, and we realized, we recognized what Solomon said there, that God will judge, that there will be a day of judgment, even for those who claim to be a representative of him. And I'd like to clarify one thing. I had a couple of people come up to me last week and ask some questions about this, and I, I, I believe probably I wasn't quite clear enough. When we talked about the church, and we talked about there being no perfect church, and we all know that, right? But we had a couple of people, I had a couple of people come up and say, well, pastor, at what point uh, is the church a problem? Are you saying that we just stay in any church? Well, no. The point was not that if you're in a bad church, you stay in a bad church necessarily. But the point was, don't give up on the God-ordained institution of the church because of a bad church. Right? If you've experienced a bad church, this doesn't mean that you reject God's design in the church because you've experienced a bad church. If, you, don't, you don't need to stay in a bad church, but just don't reject God's design because of man's problems. Right? And that was the idea, and that's where we came to last week, or at least that's where we were supposed to come to. So I wanted to clarify that. This week we consider another reality that would seem to threaten God's control. The the reality of death. If God is in control, how do we account for death? If mankind is supposed to be special, how do we account for death? Solomon says this beginning in verse 18. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Solomon is speaking to his heart again. And he's been doing this several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's talking to himself. He's saying something in his heart. It is, in fact, the third and final time that we see this expression in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first time was in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, where Solomon told himself that he would test his heart's claims regarding satisfaction. He said to his heart, I'll try. I'll try folly. I'll try. Basically, he said, I'll throw myself into anything and everything. 
Because my heart is telling me that if I throw myself into certain things that I'll finally find satisfaction, I'll finally find happiness. And he said it didn't work. That his heart told him, go into the world and do everything as if the world, uh, just like the world, and pursue wickedness, and that's going to make you happy. And Solomon says, I tried and it didn't work. I listened to my heart and my heart was lying. Last week in Ecclesiastes 3.17, we saw another instance. Solomon said in his heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. And so he's talking to his heart and he reminds his heart, when he looks at corruption around him, he reminds his heart that God is going to judge the corrupt and God is going to judge the wicked just as he'll judge the righteous. And now here we are in verse 18, and he consults with his heart again concerning the, what he calls the estate of the sons of men. That word estate there literally meaning the order of the sons of men. Where do men fall in the pecking order? Are they just brute beasts? Are we just like anything else? Are we just like the animals? Is there really no purpose other than to live and to to die. He's considered corruption. Solomon recognized that God is bigger than corruption, that in the midst of corruption, God will judge, that even though corruption rules down below, there's coming a day when corruption will be made manifest and will be completely wiped out. But what about something less volitional, right? Corruption is a volitional thing. It's something that we, we exercise our will unto corruption. But you know, death isn't quite that way, is it? Solomon looks at men in this particular life and he says, look, how are we any better than a beast? Beasts live, they die. We live, we die. And he considers this thought as we continue in our context. In verse 19 he says, For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. And that, uh, excuse me, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. So he's considering the estate of the sons of men. He's considering the pecking order of man and animal. And he says, look, they all die. As one dies, so another dies. He says, man is no different, no better than a beast, because the things which fall upon the one falls upon the other. That which man experiences is the same which beast experiences, namely that we will both die. Now Solomon has already contemplated this troubling thought as it relates to the fool and the wise, right? Remember in Ecclesiastes 2, he said, I looked at the foolish man and I looked at the wise man and the fool and his foolish choices and the wise and his wise choices and they both ended up in the same place. They both ended up in the grave. The wise man will die just as the fool. One thing happeneth to them all. And so then he says, well, what is the benefit of being wise more than being a fool? But then he answered himself, if you remember, he came to the conclusion that it is better to be wise than a fool. It is happier to be the wise man than the fool. For the wise man receives those natural blessings from God, and then God is greater still. Now Solomon is at another, what we might call a philosophical impasse, right? So he's, he's wrestled with the fool and the wise, and he says, yeah, it is better to be wise. Sure, you can't, take, you can't take the money with you. You can't take the things with you. You can't take the things with you, but you can live a life as unto the Lord. And that's all pointing towards what Solomon's going to end up with in Ecclesiastes 12, to fear the Lord. That's where he's going with this, right? Well, now the thoughts of his heart are bringing him to an even more base comparison. Not only 
Is he questioning whether there's value in a life of wisdom? But now he's questioning whether or not under the sun there's actually any value to man's life at all. Now remember, under the sun is the context. He is discarding, he's taking God out of the equation. As a man, if I just look at it outside of God, if I'm just looking at the life that I live, live and die, is there really any value? And Solomon's uh, immediate contention here is that man has no preeminence above beast. And so by extension, God cares no more for a man than he does for a beast. That man holds no special place in the design of God, but only to be another living thing that lives, eats, and dies under the sun. And then we find Solomon's uh, catchword here. For all is vanity, right? And we've talked about that word vanity, meaning lacking that which is necessary to provide lasting satisfaction. Life is not enough. It's not enough just to live. If all we're doing here is living, then there's no lasting satisfaction in it. And then he concludes this kind of fatalistic element of his consideration in verse 20. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. He references a concept which we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam chose to rebel against God, Eve was deceived. Adam, was he chose to rebel against God. They realized that they were naked. They were given the knowledge of good and evil. They went and they hid themselves. God would eventually clothe them in animal uh, skin. They clothed themselves in leaves. And as God is talking with them, then he curses them. He tells Adam, that he will return unto the ground from which he came, for he is made of dust, and unto dust will he return. As a part of Adam's curse, God told Adam that he would return to the ground under which he was created. Beasts and man both return to the dust from which they were created, and so Solomon says, what's the difference? What's the advantage? Does God really care about man? Is there really a master plan does death threaten the concept of God? Is God perhaps even just that great clockwinder, right? That wound us up and then let us go and doesn't even care about us anymore. As with the last controversy, however, Solomon answers his question. He reminds us that that's certainly not the case. You know, a life without God is a life that does become fatalistic and meaningless. The end result of a life where we don't regard God, the end result of a life where we throw God out the window is that it really doesn't mean much. We're here, we live, we die. We're just like the animals. What purpose is there? But if there is a God, everything changes. If there's a God that loves you, everything changes. So Solomon says this in verse 21. He says, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? This verse has faced much interpretive scrutiny over the years, primarily re revolving around the debate of whether or not this is a question or a statement. Many believe uh, the Hebrew lends itself to being a question, even though the wording does not. And what threatens them about interpreting this as a question is that it means Solomon might be questioning the reality of the resurrection. And that wouldn't really make any sense. After all, Solomon just mentioned a couple of verses ago 
that the righteous and the wicked would face a day of judgment. And if the righteous and wicked will face a day of judgment, then he certainly knows there's a God, and he certainly knows that there's a coming resurrection. Later in the book, Solomon will reiterate this conviction many times. So they say, what is he doing here? How is this supposed to be read? Some interpreters say this should not be a question. It should be an, uh, an assertion. But this controversy is valid only if we assume that the text is asking who knoweth whether the spirit of man goeth upward? If we ask that question, who knoweth whether the spirit of man goeth upward? Well, then Solomon is questioning the resurrection. But I like the way the King James has it translated here. Who knows the spirit of man that goeth upward? This is a valid way to translate it, and it, it makes more sense. Solomon then asks, who knows just how similar or different the spirit of man and spirit of a beast truly are? Who knows just how much a beast knows about his creator other than simple obedience? Beasts can't communicate. The spirit of beast is a mystery except to this degree, Solomon says. There's one thing we do know, that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of a beast goes downward. That man has a further purpose and the beast does not. When a man's body dies, he continues to live. The spirit, that immortal part of a man, continues. And on the contrary, when a beast dies, he ceases to exist. He goes into the ground. Now, when we look into prophecy, we see animals in the millennial kingdom, still on this earth, we're not necessarily saying that God could not or would not create animals in some eternal state. But there's nothing in Scripture that leads us to believe that animals in this existence have anything beyond this existence. When Fluffy dies, he goes to the ground. And while God cares enough about the animals to provide for them, Jesus does say this in Luke chapter 12, verse 24. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap which neither have storehouses nor barn, but God feedeth them, how much more are ye better than the fowls? So God cares for animals. God loves animals. God has called us to have dominion over the animals. This is important. This is true. God has called us to care for animals. But we are much more important to God than, than animals. God cares much more for us. We are much more important When, man, uh, when we consider this, that man and beast are different, that we are something far more special, that when we die, our spirits continue either into ever, everlasting life or everlasting judgment, it changes things. It changes how we understand God. It changes how we understand our relationship to God. And it ought to change the way we see God and the way we see God and his perception of us. Solomon then concludes in verse 22. Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? When you die, Solomon says, you move on to something wholly different. We often comfort ourselves with the idea that those who have passed on before us uh, are now in peace. 
And while this brings us comfort, we need to understand that while they are now in peace, that by God's grace, they're in a better peace if they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. We comfort ourselves with the idea perhaps that somebody is watching us, that they are looking down and that they are looking at what we do. And, and that is comforting as well. But uh, in the life to come, we might assume that they're so busy with the glory of the Lord. They're so busy with eternity. They're so busy in their peace and their rest. They've run that race with patience. They're on the other side. I'd like to think that our loved ones are so consumed with the joys of that existence that maybe they aren't even all that inclined to wonder what's still going on in this sin-cursed existence. And that's what Solomon is saying here at the end. Who will bring a man to see what comes after him? Who will take a man who has already passed into eternity back to check on his progress? Why would that man who has finished his course care at all about the temporal elements of the life that he's left behind? It's all done. It's all left behind. That's insignificant to him in the breadth of eternity. And so for us, Solomon says, we have this time to rejoice in this day. We can't take it with us. Serve the Lord in this time. Enjoy that which God has given us to, virtually, to virtuously enjoy in this life. Enjoy the portion which we receive. And then, of course, we step into eternity and we step into the joy of our Lord. So within Solomon's musings here, we ask the question, where does this leave us? Why do we think that man is something special? Why does it matter that we're special? And what does it mean for us both in this life and in the life to come? If God has made us special, if God considers us as a higher order, a higher estate than the beasts, if we have an eternal spirit which is going in one of two directions, either eternally in heaven or eternally in hell, if God has made that to come to pass, whereas the beasts cease, well, what does that mean for us today? Why is man different? Why is man greater than beast? And that's what we're going to talk about in our application this morning. First, I'd like you to consider an end versus a transition. An end versus a transition. Why is man different? Why is he greater than beasts? Consider an end versus a transition. We begin where Solomon began. You are special because there is an immortal part of you. We believe that mankind is a three-part being made up of body, soul, and spirit. The body is the temporal, physical vessel within which we live. It's the part of us that allows us to do things, right? It's that physical vessel that is created for this existence that allows us to operate within this existence. The soul is the part of us that makes us us. It's our personality. It's our will. It's um, the part of you that you think of. When you think of a person, there's, there's a, an image that comes to mind of what they physically look at, but then there's other things that come to mind about their personality, right? About who they really are. 
And who we are is far more of an inside thing than it is an outside thing. It only comes outside as we act, as we do things with our body. And then there's the spirit. And the spirit is the part of us that's able to commune with God. The spirit is the part of us that is able to have a relationship with him, that understands um, his existence. Uh, it can dominate our soul so that we can conform our personality to the will of God. Now, as the scriptures describe it, our body goes nowhere but the ground. And on the day of resurrection, we'll get a new one. The soul is debated. Some people believe that the soul is eternal with the spirit. Others believe that the soul is temporal, stays with the body. It doesn't really matter all that much one way or another. But the spirit is, without question, immortal, eternal. Animals, on the other hand, they have that body, they have that physical vessel. And we understand animals to have souls, right? They have personality. If you've ever had a dog or a cat, you know that animals have personality. But the scriptures seem to indicate throughout, including in our passage today, that they do not have spirits. That they have no immortal element like that of a man. Jesus often spoke of the immortality of man, and not just of righteous man, but also of unrighteous. He spoke of the day of judgment, and he contrasted the righteous with the unrighteous, saying this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into, ever, uh, into life eternal. Uh, the fact that not just the righteous are eternal, but the unrighteous are eternal as well, that we are both immortal, and that we will both experience a resurrection is supported in the scriptures. Paul preached in Acts 24 to the Sanhedrin, and he said this in verses 14 and 15, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Paul speaks of a resurrection, and he says that there's going to be a resurrection not just of the just, but a resurrection of the unjust as well. The resurrection of the just is often called in scriptures the first resurrection, and the resurrection of the unjust is often called the second death. In each case, the immortal part of man is given a new body, one in which to live in peace and in the joy of his Lord, and the other in which to live in the torments of eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire. Yet one resurrected body is fit unto eternal life. The other resurrected body is fit unto eternal death. So we read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished, speaking of the millennial reign. And uh, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The first resurrection is everybody that lives prior to those thousand years of the reign of Christ. And over those who take part in this resurrection, the second death, the Bible says, has no power. And this is contrasted with the second death, which is explicitly considered at the end of Revelation 20, when the Bible speaks of the events following the thousand-year reign of Christ. The Bible says in verses 11 to 15 of Revelation 20, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. 
and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we've spoken before of the difference between hell and the lake of fire. Hell is a current waiting place, right? It is currently in existence. It's a waiting place where men and women go, the spirits of unbelievers go to await their final judgment. After the thousand-year reign of Christ in a kingdom of perfection, the Bible tells us that death and hell will be delivered up, that all that are in it will be judged according to the Lamb's book of life. Their names will not be found written in the Lamb's book of life, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. The Bible talks about this as eternal separation from God. And when the Bible speaks of heaven and hell, those are the terms within which we find them. Heaven is the place where we are eternally with the Lord. Hell is the place, the lake of fire is the place where we are eternally separated from God. All of this so that we might understand that man is different than the beast in this. Man is different from beast in that one ends at death. The other transitions at death. The beast goes into the ground, he's done. But God has made us eternal. That there is a future. That there is something after death. That we die and that's only a transition. Man's death does not bring an end. And this leads us to the natural question, are you ready for that end? We move on to point number two in just a moment. But the Bible tells us that because each of us will face this end, death is inevitable. Are you ready for that transition? The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The big problem, why is there death? Why is there corruption? Why are these things in the world? Well, the Bible says these things are in the world because of sin. That you're a sinner. That I'm a sinner. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible also tells us that the wages of sin is death. That the payment of sin, that because you're a sinner and because I'm a sinner, we are a part of that death, that separation from God, that Second death, that's the road that we have been placed on because we're sinners. We're sinners by choice, and we're sinners in Adam's sin, even by birth. And there's not one of us that, sa that can say that we haven't sinned. And because God is holy, and man is sinful, a holy God cannot fellowship with a sinful man. There is something between us, and that something is sin. So the wages of sin is death, but... Thank the Lord that's not the end of the verse. The verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Bible says that God sent his only begotten son named Jesus Christ. He came into this earth, born a man, but 100% God. And he lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. And the Bible says that as Jesus got onto the cross, was placed onto the cross, 
that God made his son Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that God took his wrath and his anger and the punishment for, for sin, your sin, my sin, every man's sin, and he placed it on Christ so that Christ bore the wrath, so that Christ paid the penalty. And now, the great standard for salvation transitions from perfection, sinless perfection, which no man could ever meet, to belief on Jesus Christ alone and his sinless perfection. So Jesus told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't buy our way to heaven. But Jesus Christ already paid the debt. And if we will accept his payment for our sin, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because there will be a transition, because there is either eternal life or eternal death for every man, we need to make sure we are on the right side of God. That our name is written in that Lamb's book of life. And that Lamb's book of life, the names are penned in that book when we accept Jesus as our Savior. So consider an end for the beast versus a transition for man. Why else is man different? Why is he better than the beast? Well, consider secondly, made versus formed. Is man greater than beast? Again, for the second point, I appeal to the passage at hand. It is not insignificant that when Solomon speaks of all things being dust in verse 20, he is referencing back to Genesis chapter 3. While all things were created out of the dust, indeed we read a different account of how they were created. There's quite a contrast between the account of the creation of the creatures and the formation and impartation of man. And we see this play out beautifully in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2 verse, excuse me, chapter 1 verses 24 to 26 we read this. And God said, "Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind." And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Here we see a chronological account of God creating both beast and man. Both are spoken into existence. The implication there being that the living word, the divine second person of the Trinity, was the one doing the creating, according to the will of the Father. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17 bears this out, that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. So we see God made beasts after their kind, and he made man. And he made man in his own image. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But now consider a more detailed account of the creation of man in Genesis 2. Verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, to this point, the Bible has used the word made to speak of God's created efforts, but as the Bible focuses upon man, it switches to the verb formed, literally meaning to mold into a form. And then after forming man, the Bible says that God breathed into him the breath of life, that word meaning spirit, and man became a living soul. 
So God formed man, and then he placed man, placed the spirit into a man, that eternal spirit, by which we're able to commune with the spirit of God. So not only do we see that God has not just made an end for us, but a transition, but we see that God did not just make us, he formed us. And he formed us in his image. And that's our third point. Why is man different than beast? Why is man greater than beast? Man is different. Man is greater than the beasts because man is made in the image of God. We mentioned this already in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The Bible is very careful to emphasize the fact that man is different from beast. And to emphasize this, we talk about the, the image of God and man. We read already Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Male and female created by God, both created in the image of God. Not only the male created in the image of God, the human race created in the image of God. Not because we look like God, indeed God is a spirit. God doesn't look like us, but because we bear God's likeness. And this image of God forms a basis not only for how we treat others, but how we distinguish our treatment between man and animal. In the days following the great global flood in which eight persons were spared, those people in the family of Noah, God allows for the first time after that flood man to eat animals. He was careful to make a distinction between killing animals and killing man. We read in Genesis 9, 3-6, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall, not, uh, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of every man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now this is important. Where have I been going with this? I haven't really uh, made that very clear yet, but where are we going with this? You know, we live in an age that is very confused about people. We live in an age that is very confused about the value of people. We live in an age that is uh, a society and a culture that is forsaking God, that is, uh, that is casting God off. And as they cast God off, as we would naturally expect, man is brought to the same sort of thinking that Solomon is brought to in this passage. If man is just a being, like a beast is a being, then how is man any more important than beast? It, he's not. How is there any more importance but for killing a, a man as there would be killing a chicken? Right? And so we get these organizations and these groups that desire to take the rights that man has and apply them to animals. And attempts to take the same level of dignity that is given to man and apply that dignity to animals. And that makes perfect sense if there is no God. That makes perfect sense if we're all just a molecular composition of goo that turned into us. Makes perfect sense, right? Because there is no difference between man and animal. But Solomon says there is a difference, and the Bible says there is a difference, and the Bible says that man has been formed in the image of God, and this is why God told man, you can eat animals, you can kill animals, but if you kill a man, then your blood is to be shed. Why? Because in the image of God, man 
was made. Because we bear the image of God. Because there is a dignity in humanity. We have a natural human dignity by nature of the fact that we are created in the image of God. And because of that, notice God did not even just say, if a man kills another man, I'll require that man's blood. He said, if a man or an animal kills another man, I will require even that animal's blood. That the image of God is so important that if an animal kills a man, I will require the blood of that animal. Because man is special to God. Because we are made in the image of God. Yes, there is a difference between a man and an animal. Yes, it is sad when a gorilla gets shot, but the kid that the gorilla was playing with is far more important. If you remember that controversy last year, or the year before, I don't even know anymore. We move from controversy to controversy so fast now in, in the news, it's hard to remember. Man is more important, every time, because man has been made in the image of God. Consider an end versus a transition. Consider made versus formed. Consider the image of God and man. Consider fourth and finally dominion. Another aspect of the formation of man in the book of Genesis reveals to us a deliberate hierarchy. Remember Solomon said, I want to learn of the estate of man in the order in which man falls in this hierarchy. And in that hierarchy, man is higher than the rest of creation. The Bible says that man was created to have dominion over creation. In this way, we see man as the keeper of the beast. The beast as subservient to man. Again, we go to Genesis 1 and we consider this. We read it already in verse 26. Far from creating us to be equals with beast, fowl and fish, God gave man dominion. God allows Adam to name them. And when man rebelled against God, his rebellion plunged the entirety of creation under the curse because man is the representative of creation. David wrote in Psalm 8, For thou hast made him, that would be man, a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. God has given man dominion, divinely declaring mankind to be different, to be greater than the beasts. And what does this mean for us? Well, simply put, this means your life matters. You are not just here to live, eat, and die. Yes, the beasts, they live, they die. You don't see too many different animals enjoying life. You don't see them uh, creating uh, inventions and enjoying those inventions and pursuing life uh, goals and career paths. Beasts operate under the laws of survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. Beasts exist for little else other than to procreate and to survive. There are even beasts which, having lived, procreated, they immediately die. They fulfilled their purpose the moment that they procreate. All of this is true. But where our society is beginning to go wrong 
is saying that since this is the lot of the beast, that this is the lot of man as well. And this is where we need to change our thinking, orient our thinking into the biblical worldview. And this is why this sermon matters. Men are not beasts. We are not just beasts. We are not just another animal. We are not just another of the same. We are specially created. We are formed in God's image. We are immortal like our creator. And we have been given dominion over creation. And since there is more to us, there is also more to life. And while the beast lives and dies, simply reassimilating into the dust into which it had been created, you have a purpose. You have a meaning. You have worth. You have natural human dignity. You have worth in that you are created in the image of God, but then you also have a purpose, that God created you to know him. We talked already about salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That is the key that unlocks the door to a relationship with the creator. Have you ever unlocked that door? Do you know him? And if you do know him, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've unlocked that door to your Creator, then you have access to Creator God. So not only do you have natural human dignity, not only then do you have that opportunity to, to live within the creativity and the joy of the life that God has created, but now you have access to eternity and a different purpose. You're not just here for you. You're not just here for family. You're not just here for these years. You have an eternity ahead of you. And an eternity which you can live for today. The thing that gives you worth, purpose, and meaning in life is that which God has given to you, the image of God in man and the privilege of a, of a relationship with him. And so we come to that point, which we've come to every week. Point number five, man can find lasting satisfaction. The threatening of God, is he con in control? Corruption, does it threaten that God is in control? No, it doesn't, because God will judge. Death, does it actually threaten that God is in control? No, because we've been created in his image. We are immortal. There is something more. We will transition. God is in control. And there can be satisfaction. Because you're not just a beast, because you're more than that, because you've been created in the image of God, because you can have a personal relationship with him, life can mean something to you. And for our closing verse this week, we consider the account of our Creator in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Paul writes, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible 
and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So let me ask you as we close this morning. In what light do you see your life? Do you regard your life as having worth? In what does that worth rest? Is it just in family? Or in life itself? The fact that you can enjoy things in this life? Or is there a greater purpose? Is there a greater worth? Do you see your worth as resting in the reality of the God who created you? Not just that you have the human dignity of being formed in the image of God, but that you can have a personal thriving relationship with your creator. And through that thriving relationship, you can honor him on this earth. How are you doing this morning? Have you succumbed to some of the fatalism of the day? Have you succumbed to thinking that there's really no purpose for you? Have you succumbed to the thinking that there's not, there's not a lot for you here? That you're going to have to create your own purpose. That you're going to have to make your own happiness. Or do you see that you're something more? Do you see that you're something special? Do you see that you're something special to God? I perhaps preach this message most to that younger generation that are among us. The ones that are growing up hearing in this culture uh, which has rejected God in a way that we haven't seen in Western society in a couple hundred years. And in a culture that has rejected God outright, purpose becomes trite. And that's the point of Ecclesiastes, is it not? If you're just going to try to find your purpose in the things of this life under the sun, in the money, in the relationships, in the success, in the fame, in the power, in the honor, you're going to be disappointed. But if you recognize that there is a creator in the heavens who knows you by name, that the very hairs of your head are numbered, that he cares, that he loves you, that he reached out to you, that he sent his son to die for you, that he has a purpose for you, everything changes. Even death, that great An impossible to overcome obstacle becomes merely a transition. It becomes a transition from the life of the flesh to the life of the spirit. From one purpose to another purpose. And that's the point. Don't let society take that away from you. Don't let man's fatalistic philosophies threaten your understanding that death is not an end it's a transition. And then let's be ready for that transition. Let's close in prayer.